0: Welcome to the Garden Church podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. It really is a massive privilege and a joy to be with you. This is a church very dear to our hearts. Um, I met Darren uh, when he was young and single. And happy, and he's now old and married and happy. And um, but I've—it's been such a joy. I think one of the first times we ministered to Darren and Brian, they they came to one of the meetings we held, and we just prayed the Holy Spirit over them. And I've just it's been such a joy and a pleasure and a privilege to watch the journey unfold, personally, maritally, family, and then for you as a community. Well done. You are greatly loved, admired. I speak of you. Uh, I do have the privilege to travel and to minister in different parts of the world, and uh, this is a story I love telling because I think it's worth telling. It inspires people to get back into the urban core centers where uh, most churches want to exit from, to have a community that, that uh, pinces a movement, a military movement, a spiritual military movement, to assault the dark places, to bring the light and the love of God into those places, is a story worth telling. I'm also deeply grateful just that the text has been, that's been given to me is one of my favorite ones. I hope I can do justice to it. And I want to do two things. I want to be true to the text, opening it up, as much as time allows, but I also want to minister to you. I'm fundamentally a father. I love being a father. I have three children. My eldest daughter and her husband have planted a church in Perth, Australia. My second daughter and her husband, who's from London, are in Costa Mesa. She's the singer-songwriter, the creative one. Well, the other one is as well. And then my son, who has the world before him. So I love being a father biologically, but I love being a father spiritually, to see men and women raised up to be set onto their God stories, their God adventures. And I hope I will add value to that. I will tread on your cultural corns. One of the great values of coming into a nation, I've lived here 21 years, is that you are not blinded by the culture. John Stott, my favorite British theologian, said, uh, culture blinds, deafens, and dopes us. Culture blinds, deafens, and dopes us. You are blinded by your culture, as am I. And one of the great values in a global story is that we mutually unveil our own cultural nakedness. Where we are vulnerable to our culture, that's the gift we give each other. So when you come to South Africa, as I was ministering there back in the day, you unveiled our naked racism, our commitment to separateness, to white elitism, to male dominance. And it was through the kindness of voices like yours that we had to face our cultural obsession with whiteness. And God had to do a deep work in me. And so I don't, do not stand up here if and where I tread on your cultural corns. It's not intended to hold a position of judgment. It's to draw you to a higher call, a greater God adventure, a more noble task. So grab your Bibles. Uh, the text will be on the screen behind me or in front of me or wherever the screen is. It's Ephesians Chapter 4, and I am starting, I'm being a little naughty, because I'm going to go to verse 1, which I know you've already covered, but hey, this is double dipping here, so why not? All right, I'm reading from the NIV, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm reading from, uh, sorry, chapter 4 from verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you. The ESV says, I therefore, in other words, he's adding on to what he's already said. He's now building onto that. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Please note that I am going to cycle back to that. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and he gave gifts to men. Obviously, ladies, that's the generic form. It means men or humankind, men and women. What does he descended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to do a few things, to prepare or equip or train God's people for the works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach, all reach, all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching or doctrine, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead... Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Father, teach us now, Holy Spirit, you are the great instructor, educator, Jesus, we only have access to the table of grace because of you. And Father, we want to surrender our values, virtues, and visions so that we can embrace you fully without reserve reluctance. Grant me grace, the speaker today, both to learn and to instruct. And my hearers, Lord, let every man and woman, if they're children here, let them encounter you in a transformative way. Maybe the funny, funniness of my accent somehow be the sharp-edged sword that pinces the heart to surrender to Jesus. Amen. It was about uh, my son's 18, so he was about four at the time. I was coming out of an elders meeting uh, at a friend's house, and uh, we always have the husbands and wives in the gig. We, we need each other. And my phone rang, and it was my mother-in-law, and uh, she called me. She said, Chris, I think you'd better come home. I said, Laws, what's happening? She said, there's a snake on the patio. Now, we were living in Diamond Bar, the house at the time backed onto the Firestone Scout Reservation, thousands of acres of undeveloped bush, and it was actually God's kindness to us. Coming from Africa, I think if we've been dumped into an urban core center without space to breathe, it may have been a little too much for us. And so uh, we, we bought this beautiful home that backed up onto this reservation, and we had all sorts of deer and lynx and bobcats and coyotes. I'm told there was a mountain lion that came through. I wasn't there, so I can say it with confidence, there was a mountain lion there. Um, but but, but uh, ironically enough, growing up in Africa, I never saw snakes, uh, well, not kind of life-threatening snakes, even though I'm sure they were around us all the time. So I did what, what every courageous man of the word does is I called one of the elders because Jesus said, go two by two. So I grabbed Jay and, and Jay was the guy to take because he'd been a missionary in Africa and killed many snakes. So I said, Jay, I will come and support your ministry. I will back you. I believe in you. And uh, we got there and there was a rattlesnake. The morning I'd done some preparation in my study and my study backed up onto the, the patio. And um, my boy had been there on his little rocking horse and he had all these little gizmos there. And, and, um, the, the, the snake had obviously been under his toy box. We just didn't know. And um, so uh, we, we, my job was to clear everyone out and, and, and hold everyone back, you know, so that Jay could do his work as, a, as a, the, the, the snake killer. And uh, I, I was a great help. I felt like I was Robin to Batman. I was right there. I, I supported him as we killed the snake, as, as he killed the snake, and, um, which we were told we shouldn't have done. But I, my boy was there. I'm not going to be politically correct when my boy's life or death is on the line. Afterwards, we cleaned up the mess. Um, Meryl, my delightful wife, called our son who had woken up from his afternoon nap, and she got on her knees in front of him, and she took his face in her hands like this, and she said, T, I need you to listen to mom very carefully. Yes, mom. You know, we killed a snake. Yes, mom. Now, my boy, this is what I need you to understand. These snakes can kill you. Yes, mom. Now, when you see a snake in the future, you must not make a noise. You must not go crazy. You must not run away. You must stand still. Did you get that, boy? Yes. Then you move back slowly. Did you get that? Don't scream, don't shout. Move back slowly. And thirdly, when you are, far away enough call me have you got that yes mom what must you do if you sneer a snake I must run I must scream and get away as far <laughs> as I possibly can a moment of instruction clearly lost when I read this text I have a familial hermeneutic which means when I read the Bible I'm always reading it through the lenses of family I'm not looking for principles I'm not looking for a philosophical adjustment of what the text may or may not mean. I'm looking for the family story. And when I read this, I cannot but help see Paul doing this. This is the church he loved so deeply. In fact, he sent one of his favorite sons, Timothy, to pastor it. This was the church, and I can almost see him on his knees holding this church, cupping her face in his hands. I I, I don't know if I'm going to get out of prison. I don't know if they're going to execute me. Now, I don't know if you've been with someone who's dying, but you know that every word matters. This is not casual conversation, shooting the breeze, spending some time over a beer. This is life and death. I need every word to count. Have you got it, my boy? Have you got it, my girl? And when I read this text, particularly this portion, I feel like Paul's high appeal is for us to understand him as Father calling us to some themes, which I will identify in just a moment, but they are pivotal for our ongoing health, growth, and maturity. Does that make sense to you? I I think as he's in prison, which we know from verse 1, he is cupping the church's face and saying, please heed this. This is absolutely imperative for you to understand. And for me, there are five threads or themes that I want to weave into this narrative and the first thing, and that's why I had to go back to verse 1, Darren, I'm so sorry, but, but I want us to understand that threaded in here is celebrating our captivity. When I came here 20 years, 21 years ago, I was honestly intrigued, and it's not all good or all bad, please hear me, I'm not a, an extreme guy, but the preoccupation with living my dream, and you know, I have just never found that in the Bible, I've never found in the Bible, my job is to define my dream, identify my dream, live my dream, and this Father smiles. I I just have never seen that in the text. I know it's prolific in our secular world, postmodern, post-Christian, pagan world. Find your dream, live your dream, sacrifice for your dream. That's what this life is all about. But when I read the text, I read Paul saying, I'm in prison for the Lord. I'm the Lord's prisoner. That was true physically, but I want to argue it's true spiritually. When you and I come to this great and glorious Christ who has redeemed us and given his life for us, we become captive to him. Our life is not our own. Our dreams are too small. At 24, I planted our first church. Meryl and I, she was 21 at college, I was 24. And I went to my mentor, Carl, and, and, and I said, Carl, you won't believe how big my dream is. I, I wanted him to be uber impressed. I said, Carl, I'm going to lead the biggest church in Durban. And I sat back with this smirk on my face thinking he is going to be so impressed. How silly. How ridiculous. How embarrassingly awkward. That I had to learn that the first great adventure of my spiritual journey is death. Dying to my dreams, dying to my wishes. I become a captive of His great plans and His great purposes. People come to me and say, well, Chris, you know, I really need to get divorced. I feel I'm captive in this marriage. Wow, that sounds amazing. That, that's, that's amazing. So am I. I am captive to 36 glorious years of marriage. Three times we nearly killed each other, but, but, but the other times were glorious years of marriage, and Marilyn and I are completely incompatible. We have nothing in common but Jesus and our kids. Nothing in common. I thought that's why you get married, because of your incompatibility. Otherwise, I'd have to marry a man just like me. And, and Paul says, I am in prison for Christ's sake or for the Lord's sake. And then he goes on and he says, uh, I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling. We're in prison to our calling, ladies and gentlemen. Merrill came to me. She was asked to speak in, in, in Orange County at a woman's event on something like living your dreams. And she came through and she sat down in, in my study. She says, can I just run a few ideas past you? I said, I'd love to, babe. She said, you know, there's one problem with this title. I'm not living my dream. Uh, would you like to keep talking because right now this is getting seriously awkward and embarrassing? You see, because she's not living her dream. I'm not like her father. I'm not six foot two, tall, dark, and handsome. I'm five foot ten and shrinking with a big butt. I'm not like her dad. I'm not quite a demure an English gentleman. I'm a robust Afrikaner who is passionate about everything he does, who continuously lives on the edge of life. And ladies and gentlemen, we are to celebrate our captivity, and our captivity is to Christ. Let me tell you about Debbie Jones. Debbie Jones came into our world, a gorgeous woman, always elegantly dressed, worked for Aramis back in the day as the regional manager. Her dream was to have a house. Her husband was the CFO of a mill. They had some means, and her house, her dream was to live in this kind of, it's difficult to translate, but sufficient to say, outer suburbs, misty hills, white picket fence, gorgeous garden, and her kids to a top private school. And I looked at her when we met her as she came to faith, and I thought, Debbie, God is about to turn your life upside down, but I dare not say it to her. Let me fast forward it to the day I flew into Francistown, Botswana. And I met Debbie, and this was not, and Debbie was always, and is still always, elegant, well dressed, well groomed. But this time it wasn't the Aramis regional manager. It was the woman who, with her husband, had planted a church amongst the squatters in Francistown. And her and I walked as tears streamed across her gorgeously made up face as we went from one squatter house to the next as she hugged these women who probably hadn't bathed for weeks, as she hugged them and loved them and said to me, This is my congregation. These are the people we love. This is who we've laid our lives down for. Her house. In the hills, in the mists, with a white picket fence and a gorgeously manicured garden had been replaced by the dusty, dirty streets of an African township as he hugged not the highly sophisticated woman of position and means and influence, but the raw, rugged women who survived every day feeding their kids on nothing, on a dollar or two. This was the congregation, and Debbie Jones was captive to the calling. You'll never... I promise you, live a life fulfilled with meaning until you let him handcuff you. Never. And you don't know what that would look like. I'm sorry to take time with this, but I so dearly want us to get this. It's the thing I do with each one of my kids. I've done once, I've done twice, I've done over and over again. I will not have the conversation with my son who starts college in August, what's your dream? I will not. I say, what's your calling, boy? What's it going to cost you? That's the conversation we have. Now, if that sounds sullen and melancholic, it certainly is not. Because with every calling, there is privilege and pain. Every calling. And Meryl and I sat in Paris for our 30th wedding anniversary as the sun was setting over the seine next near Notre Dame, and there was a man pulled out a violin and started playing, and the Parisians in their true romantic beauty started dancing on the street, and I had a beer, and she and Meryl had a glass of wine, and she doesn't even really drink. The mood just seemed to need a glass of wine, that's all. And we sat there with tears down our faces because we've been handcuffed to Christ and the calling He's given to us. If we don't settle that, dear friends, we will always wonder why. You see, if we don't know the why behind our calling, we will always wonder, why has this happened to me? But when we settle the why of our calling, we'll, do you think Paul said, oh God, all that I did was love you and now I'm in prison? This is so unfair. I just love you, that's all I do. I just want to tell everyone how amazing you are. Now they're going to kill me. Do you think he did that? He worshiped. Jesus, what a wonder you are. You're amazing. Now, why me? Why am I single? Why am I ugly, short with a bent nose and a receding hairline? That's what they say he looked like. Do you think he ever said that? Do you ever look in the mirror and say, Why, God, i be be 6'2", cut. <laughs> did you think? Do you think he ever did that? Because because he was captive to his calling to be the proclaimer of the good news to the Gentiles, to the uncircumcised, to those who did not know Jesus. And he said, I'll go to prison for your sake. I'll be single for your sake. I'll live a lonely life for your sake. I'll be lost at sea for your sake. Why? Because he knew that he was captive to the Lord, captive to his calling, and he viewed it a privilege. Ladies and gentlemen, please, I urge you, stop fighting God's calling. Should I tell you about Dave? Dave was a harbour master, earning huge money. British man. And he went to Abu Dhabi and uh, fell in love with Jesus. as a British man in Abu Dhabi. Not Abu Dhabi, Doha. He started gathering a group of friends in his house who were similar Jesus lovers. Pretty soon, we got the call. Guys, this group's bigger than me. I I need someone to come and help me plant this church. We said, Dave, it's you, buddy. It's you. You're the man. He grew that church. Then are now something like five language, different language congregations. I don't know how many churches they've planted in Nepal and whatever. It's because a harbor master said, "I will die to the privilege I have of being the harbor master with much money, much influence, being with the sheik and all the influential pieces. I will say yes to a Jesus call that will take me to the villages of Nepal and share the love of Christ with them." What captivity am I the privilege of? You want a big story? You want a big dream? Put your hands out and get handcuffed to Christ. See what He'll do with your life. I could tell so many stories that run through my mind. Photograph after photograph of friends, young and old, who said, yes, I will be held captive. The second thing I want to say, you with me? Sorry I took so long with that, but I so want that to leak into our hearts. I so want that. Not only is they celebrating our captivity, but it's embracing our togetherness. Don't you love all the ones? One Father, one Son, one Holy Spirit, one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God in all who is over all. I love the Trinity. I love the fact that we don't serve one God, singular, but one God made up of three persons. How could a God who loves no one know about love or dispense love or dispense partnership or dispense togetherness? Jonathan Marlowe says this, the theologians of the early church tried to describe this wonderful reality we call Trinity. If any of you have been to a Greek wedding, you may have seen their distinctive way of dancing, he writes. It's called the perichoresis, I think. I hope my pronunciation is good. Otherwise, it's just my South African accent. There are not two dancers, but at least three. They start to go in circles, weaving in and out as this very beautiful pattern of motion. They start to go faster and faster, all the while staying in perfect rhythm and in sync with each other. Eventually, they are dancing so quickly and yet so effortlessly that as you look at them, it becomes a blur. Their individual identities are part of a larger dance or dance. The early church fathers and mothers looked at that dance, the perichoresis, and said, that's what the Trinity is like. It's a harmonious set of relationships in which there is mutual giving and receiving. This relationship is called love, the dance of love. And ladies and gentlemen, the second cultural corn that I'm standing on is our quest for rampant individualism, no more so anywhere in the world than in Southern California. And I want to appeal to you. You will never step into the fullness of all that God has for you if you try to do it alone, unless God has gifted you with the grace of singleness. But even then, He puts you in community. This morning estimated two million Christians who are not in community. I'm not talking about in a gathering. I'm talking about in community, doing life face-on-face with friends who love each other, who are true, transparent, and authentic, who view doubt as a doorway to faith, who see our stumbling steps as key to running a marathon. And it's as if Paul holds his kids And he says, you must understand, you cannot do this alone. Even God has chosen not to be alone. My favorite elder probably, and now this may be influenced by sentiment, and you'll understand why. There's a big African-American ex-football player called George Tyree. Now, I say African-American because I come from South Africa, and I had to be healed of racism. I brought George onto team with his wonderful wife, Priscilla, and loved them. And because Meryl and I traveled to do what we do, every time before we left, George would come up to Meryl and he would hold her, and he would say to her, Meryl, don't worry, the kids would be fine, and she knew he would take a bullet for them. And then he would come to me and he'd hug me and hold me, envelop me. And he'd say, Chris, the church will be fine, and I knew it would be because he would take a bullet for her. I was in South Africa when I got the call from Priscilla, you've gotta come home, George's got leukemia, was 38 years old. I said, Priscilla, you're lying to me. She said, they've diagnosed him, he's dying. I went to my friends, and this is Christian community, I went to my friends who I'd come to teach at, and I said, guys, I've gotta get back to LA. They put me, Meryl and I, on on an Air France, Business class flight: I never fly business class. I felt so fancy. <laughs> we were already in the mountains to speak at a conference, and it's the first and only time in my life that an aircraft was held for us. Air France kept the plane from leaving till we got there. We had to call. We were on our way, broke every speed limit. had a crazy young, wild South African drive us in a Subaru over 200 kilometers an hour. It was crazy. George passed, and I daren't go there. It's too tender still. Sitting with Priscilla and telling the kids, Sophia, nine, Camille, seven, Kenzie, five, and his little boy that he'd longed for, seven months. Telling them was the most difficult pastoral thing I've ever had to do, but that's not the beauty of the story. The beauty of the story was Sunday morning, Camille, who's seven, wakes up. She says, Mom, aren't we going to church? Priscilla says, but I don't think I've got it. I don't think I can face it. I Camille looks at her. Camille's strong like her dad. She looked at her mom, and it was her turn to take her mom's face. In and I said, Mom, Dad always said this, Camille, no matter what happens, run to the church. I said, Mom, Dad said, we've got to run to the church. We have to run. I remember getting up to preach, and I looked as the Tyree Fivesome walked through the door, and I wept. And the congregation wept because George had said, no matter what happens, run to the church. Our societal call is do it alone. The biblical call is run to the church. Brene Brown in her book, Dare, greatly said, going it alone is a value we hold in high esteem in our culture. Ironically, even when it comes to cultivating connection, I get the appeal. I have rugged individualism in my DNA. In reality, walking alone can feel miserable and depressing, but we admire the strength it conveys, and going it alone is revered in our culture. We need support. We need folks who will let us try on new ways of being without judging us. We need a hand to pull us off the ground when we get kicked in the arena, And if we live courageously, life, sorry, if we live a courageous life, that will happen. Ladies and gentlemen, the beauty of togetherness resides in us. I have to make a biblical appeal to derobe yourself of the culture of individualism. You'll live a very unhappy marriage. Your spiritual life will never gain great heights because there's way too much that we can achieve together. The Bible says one will put a thousand to flight two, ten thousand. If I'm by myself, I halve that. I wish Meryl was here, and I'm not sure. I think we're coming back in August. I'd love you to meet her. Of this, I'm absolutely certain. I am a fraction of the man without her. I didn't always see that. I didn't always understand that some of our married life because Meryl can be a little bit more negative, a bit more cautious, a little bit more pessimistic. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, I'm the man. I'm the alpha male. I'm a South African man, you know. And it was such idiocy of me to ever think that everything God's called us to, I could even get close to without her. Not behind me, right alongside me, attached at the hip. Her lenses, her insight, her empathy, her compassion, her prophetic perspective, her wisdom, her humility makes us as a ministry team who we are. We were helping out at a church in South County called Coast Hills, and one of the elders came to me and said, I have a question for you. I thought, well, is this theological, personal, ecclesiological? And uh, he said, How come we only ever speak of Chris and Merrill as if it's one word? We never speak of Chris. We never speak of Meryl. We speak of Chris and Meryl. Chris and Meryl. I said, I'll tell you why. I said, when we came to faith 40 years ago, we said, we don't know what it means, but we're going to do this thing together. You can choose. You can do the Frank Sinatra thing and die in Vegas. I did it my way. Or... You can do it this way, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one Lord, one Father, one Spirit, together. See, we can't rush to get to the gifts if we don't understand we've got to die to our calling, got to hold captivity dearly, and we've got to embrace the wonder of togetherness. It is wonderful. Will we irritate each other? Absolutely. Will we get on each other's nerves? Heck yeah. No one loves Meryl, Diane, Venant like I do, and no one has hurt her as much as I have. But together we can achieve more. Are you with me? Let me jump through some. I have to miss out on some stuff here. Please hear me. I love you too much to just come up and placate you. I care too deeply for the garden story. It's early days. The church we planted is 34 years old. It's in a fourth leader. All of them have come through. That's in Durban, South Africa. All of them have come through from within. It's a church of thousands. Planted many churches around the world. Sat and made a note of it the other day. I thought, wow, where have all those men and women gone? Humbled. But there were some things that we had to put in place first. And this was one of them. You know, can I tell you another little story? I, I, Darren, I hope this is helpful. One of the things we decided is that we ministry as families, not as dads, not as dads and moms, as families. So on Sunday nights, for 34 years, we've had a Sunday night gathering, they still have it, and we've never had kids' ministry once. You know, when I go there now, the very kids who used to sit on the floor on a Sunday night, we started with our daughter, with Nas and the other kids her age, we'd bring a little blanket, the kids would be in their pajamas, we'd teach them, there's a little, your snack, pens and crayons and coloring in books. I I flew to Toronto to a church plant there and a gorgeous 18-year-old guy walked up to me and he held me and wept. He said, you know, my parents moved to Toronto from South Africa to help this church plant. And He said, I've hated it. But I grew up hearing your voice. I used to sit at my mom's feet when you preached and I would draw and eat my snacks and sit on the blanket and I'd fall asleep. And he said, when I heard your voice today, I knew everything would be fine. Ministry is not what dad does or what dad and mom do or what dad and mom do in different churches. Where do we get that from? Isn't this supposed to be family? Isn't that what we do together? And what the kids do with us. Embrace the power of togetherness. I need to close. Actually, I need to close. And I'm sorry we haven't got very far at all. I'll try better in the second service. You can stay if you want. (laughs) Paul gives a great fivefold or fourfold, depending on how you interpret it, picture of of these gifts. So let it be sufficient to say, because I think it will help you as we land. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, or pastor teacher. Not everyone has one of those gifts. I don't believe that. Some do. I'm not going to fight about it. But I think everyone has that lens. And the problem in the church oftentimes is we don't understand the lens through which we look at what's happening those of you with an apostolic lens generally are movers, you're entrepreneurs, you're initiators, you're ideators. You want the church to keep moving forward. You celebrate the high moments when someone's going somewhere. A missionary, a church planter, a global initiative, working with the refugees in Athens, that kind of thing stirs inside of you because you have that apostolic lens through which you read the Bible, through which you live your life, your money, your checkbook reflects that, your time, your week reflects that because there is this sent one inside of you and you can't help it. You start getting frustrated when no one goes anywhere, when the nations aren't spoken about, when, the, when those who are far away from God can go to hell, it drives you nuts. The prophetic ones are those who at least edify, exhort and comfort. The sensitivity to the Holy Spirit is what matters most to you. I've watched prophetic people over the years. I have a prophetic adjective to my noun, I'm not a prophet. But the prophets love the Holy Spirit. It's it's what's more important than anything else. So when they see you walking in with your coffee during worship, talking to your mate, the prophetic people wanna come up there and just take you down. The Holy Spirit's here, jerk. The Holy Spirit is here. Honor him, revere him, give him space, give him room, give him time. He wants to meet you. Are you with me? The evangelist is preoccupied with those who are far away from God. We don't have an altar call. No one gets saved in this church. What on earth is happening? Can't we see there are people right there? We shouldn't be meeting, says the evangelist. We should be going door to door. What is it? It's a lens that wants to see men and women coming to Christ. It's a beautiful lens. I wish I had that lens more often. It's a beautiful lens. The pastor is the nurturer, carer, who biblically actually wants to bring people to maturity. It's not just empathy and compassion. It's a commitment to maturity. It's taking people on a journey. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me besides the quiet waters. It's not, oh, don't disrupt the church, Darren. Keep everything cool. Keep it hip. <laughs> no, keep it robust. Keep it radical. Keep it. You see the prophetic piece in me? See, I can't help it. When I see people getting cool, I want to cut off their beards and ruffle their hair. That's what I want to do. Because we can't be too cool. I, I, I want to. I, when, the, when the Word says, let's shout unto the Lord, and we're like, shout to the Lord. I'm like, stop. Shout. What does that mean? Exactly. What does that mean? It means shout. See. See, that's because that's the way I'm wired. Those are my lenses. And then those of you with a teaching adjective are those who love the text, who want, even now you're a bit irritated because isn't Chris supposed to be line upon line, word upon word, what's the primary idea? Of course he is, but that's not my primary lens. Now, I'm saying all of this as we land because we need each other. A healthy church is where all those adjectives feed in where well, we need the apostolic stirrings of the sent ones. The, the, the word of apostolos in the original Greek was like a naval ship being sent out on an assignment, go and beat the you-know-what out of the pirates of the Caribbean. That's the apostolic mantle. Go on mission. It's radical, it's robust, it's combative, it's military. prophetic types we need you to keep us in touch with the Holy Spirit don't let the announcements be longer than the worship they weren't this morning that's why I can say it but some churches you really I don't know we can't sing a lot today we've got 12 announcements I want to say buddy no one ever remembers announcements throw them away and let's worship God we will remember that you with me you hear what I'm saying we need each other we can't build little leaning towers of pieces We can't build these churches that are lopsided. We're a teaching church. We're a prophetic church. We're this church. No, no, we're an all church. We need all of these adjectives to feed into a healthy robe. And we love each other and we respect each other. Don't roll your eyes when the prophetic person comes up. Oh, here they go again. No, they want purity. They want holiness. They want God. They want God amongst us. They're crying out for revival. They have to because you're not. healthy churches where all of these things feed and I celebrate who I am I'm comfortable with who I am I am a pastor in a prophetic community oh we need you I'm a teacher in an evangelistic community oh we need you it's when each part that it lands there a mature community is where we every person plays their part every part of the body is absolutely essentially wired